Welcome to Return of the Hack, the discussion series that brings you cyber stories behind the technology. I'm your host, Neil Langridge, and I'm joined today by Khalid Khan from Forcepoint. We cover some of Khalid's background and the role of cybersecurity in industrial systems, some of the major historical IT events like Y2K, and then look forward to see how we protect our infrastructure in the future. Hi, everybody. I'm Neil Langridge from E92 Plus, and welcome to the latest in our video discussion series. Uh, I'm joined today by Khalid Khan, who's the Sales Engineering Director for Northern Europe at Forcepoint. Hi, Khalid. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to see you, Neil. Yes, and you too. So um, we're going to be talking about a few different topics today, um, in particular, kind of looking back at uh, some of the history of some kind of major, major kind of breaches, some of the challenges that organisations have faced, especially in kind of in the uh, industrial sector around kind of uh, particular hacks against things like kind of infrastructure and applications and services there. Um, but we're going to cover a few different areas. But just to start with, Keith, if you want to give a little background about what you do at Forcepoint and then uh, maybe kind of, you know, a little bit of your, where you worked before as well. So I joined Forcepoint uh, at the end of January um, and I'm a sales engineering director for Northern Europe, as you said. Um, and my role and responsibility is to look at our customers and provide solutions to their problems through uh, architectural and product discussions and descriptions. So we cover uh, obviously Forcepoint portfolio uh, in its entirety and the team is responsible for getting in front of customers, understanding their problems, uh, identifying where uh, really the gaps are and looking at providing solutions that are capability acquisition based. And it's a combination of product services uh, architecture, support, whatever it may take. Okay. Fantastic. And then in terms of some of the, the, the roles that you had before uh, before joining joining Forcepoint? Sure, sure. So uh, I, I came back to the UK uh, actually last year, uh, having worked uh, with Cisco in, in Dubai, and I ran uh, some of the architecture practices, security architecture practices uh, that were responsible for uh, our top customers that had typically data center networking customers. So worked with Cisco um, and prior to that, uh, and Cisco, as you know, is a massive uh, organization. And I worked both in a, a thought leadership role and uh, from an architecture perspective, cybersecurity architecture at Cisco, including SD-WAN and SDA, things that were, you know, uh, uh, looking at self-healing networks, automation, and all that good stuff that goes with, uh, with Cisco. And I covered actually the whole of uh, Europe uh, as well. So early on, I was responsible a lot for a lot of the uh, Middle Eastern customers because they had industry control systems and there were uh, a lot of networking uh, customers that we had and across Europe, uh, uh, UK and uh, and of course Nordics as well. So uh, Cisco was one. Before that, um, I actually went out from uh, the UK around 2011 with Verizon, uh, partly to do with the fact that there was a lot of geopolitics that was going on in the Middle East and Africa region. Um, and with Verizon, we had a, a pretty large uh, uh, a breach investigations team, which was forensics team that, that was part of our, our group as well, not directly under me, but with, we worked with them. Uh, and of course, uh, as, as, a, as Verizon, you probably know the DBIR, the data breach investigations report that they publish every year. Uh, so part of that was to actually look at some of the the uh, compelling events that were happening. 
Uh, most of them were politically related. A lot of them were financially related. So I worked with Verizon to investigate a number of uh, key uh, areas, breaches that took place uh, as, as well. And of course, looked at customers across the whole um, from Moscow to, to Cape Town, across that geography, um, all the verticals. And our responsibility was really, again, providing um, advice, guidance, implementation, integration across the whole uh, works uh, for cybersecurity with our major customers uh, that were there. Most of those customers were typically US, uh, European-based companies, but quite a few uh, engagements that were really uh, around some of those regional players as well. So I had some interesting engagements uh, with uh, some of the key oil and gas customers too. Yeah, and and I think that kind of it's interesting. It ties in a, a kind of quite a trend that we're seeing at the moment in terms of uh, not just uh, cyber criminals attacking for for commercial gain, but also there's there's the kind of the spectre of geopolitics coming in in terms of targeting industrial control uh, control systems, supply chains, and that 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 subject around cybersecurity being kind of fundamentally tied in with availability and resiliency. I mean that goes back a long way, all the way. Well, I mean, all the way to the, the start of those initial networks when it was all about connectivity um, and, and security kind of came soon after when we realized the challenges. But even some of those early kind of landmark events like Y2K, it really brought home the importance of kind of fundamentally resilient networks and, and the need for cybersecurity, not just to protect from data theft, but to, to ensure that systems were working because otherwise organizations just couldn't function. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just to throw back a little bit more towards, you know, the early part of my career, I actually started off with Rockwell, uh, Alan Bradley, a subsidiary of Rockwell uh, Automation Products. And that was in 1980s and, and 1985, 86, I was responsible for developing uh, the first protocol analyzer. Uh, so these were industrial automation products that actually didn't speak the typical, you know, IT language that we had with IPX or, or LAT or any of that stuff. So these uh, pro this protocol analyzer was actually being used to actually look at availability for us. So uh, I did that in machine code. We had to look at, you know, ways that we could actually pick the packets up really quickly, uh, analyze where they were, what they were, where they were headed. Uh, and based on that, we could then create a topology and network architecture that would make sure that the ability and availability, which was the key uh, crux of this, that was a key attribute we had to fix. Uh, we were able to position assets in the right vicinity so that ultimately it was availability driven. Um, and I hadn't realized that that was actually a security product that I was developing. Um, hadn't realized that cybersecurity was a, uh, was a thing at all. That nobody had talked about it until I guess DEC uh, had created a, a, a DECUS forum, which was a security forum at DEC um, that was in the early 90s. But at that point in time, uh, you know, it became pretty clear that it had to be uh, available, and we had to do everything we could to get the packet from A to B in the fastest possible way. Understand how we can you know localize that traffic. So often that's that's kind of going full circle. That's where ideally we want to get security right now, which is embedded in people's networks and systems and infrastructure rather than just being a sticking plaster kind of add on. Um, and also making sure that security helps deliver the best possible operational performance. So it's not a it's not a prohibitor to productivity. It's an enhancer, I suppose. So, you know, that's where we started. And sometimes it feels like we've we've got a little bit further away that security is kind of sit and isolated by itself and it's it's its own team when ideally it needs to be kind of a, a core part of any IT system. 
Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because, um, you know, again, I, I worked at RSA Security early 2000s, so this is after the, the, the Y2K projects that I was involved with. Um, and and in, in the early 2000s, obviously, uh, RSA Security is a, a well-known brand and we had encryption toolkits and encryption was the key. So at that point in time, I remember that we were looking at, at teaching the community, the wider community, the IT community about identities and how identities were relevant and why, you know, collaborative commerce was going to be a key theme in the future. Internet had just, you know, started to bubble. If you remember the Y2K, we had the internet stocks, you know, everybody creating a dot-com website. And if you were in dot-com, you were a multimillionaire by default uh, until obviously it collapsed. But at RSA, we took that and we, we leveraged what we called encryption and certificates, uh, obviously PKI certificates to, to do digital signing. What that meant was we were able to help create the likes of Amazon today and all the commercial commerce that you have, the, the, the e-commerce, the world that exists today. So we became, you know, uh, security actually was a business enabler. It created, you know, contracts that you would have, you know, not been able to perform or, or adhere to courts, but by having these you know, digital non-repudiable signatures, you could actually create confidentiality, integrity, non-repudiation, and be, uh, be able to present it in a court of law. So that, I think, enabled and enhanced the, the cybersecurity concepts into commercial organizations and ultimately helped to build what I consider you know, uh, today, which is effectively the collaborative commerce that exists with supply chains working together in, in, uh, you know, in a SAML type of way that allows everybody to uh, effectively create a, a global uh, working organization. And I, and I think that concept kind of has has kind of come back in a little bit through the way that kind of cloud computing has has emolved, uh, kind of you know evolved and emerged. And I think sometimes it's it's too easy to forget it that concept around shared responsibility uh, in terms of cloud computing and where the fact that the the you know the providers whether you're going kind of private cloud or public cloud or kind of the hyperscale marketplaces any of those everybody has a responsibility to get involved and those concepts of supply chain integration and using pkis back in the day but now kind of things like around apis and connecting systems connecting applications that's kind of going back to that fundamental of everybody in the connection needs to have hold that responsibility so i suppose it's Kind of how can we continue to to drive that? Because we've seen supply chain attacks increasingly um, targeting uh, organisations, and that's that's exposed a few vulnerabilities. Yeah, absolutely. If you remember back uh, a few years ago, RSA was actually attacked. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's interesting because that was a supply chain attack. In fact, the target was never RSA. Uh, the target was to acquire the RSA keys for access to Lockheed Martins, to Raytheons, to you know, uh, our old company, our owners Raytheon and others, um, because that's what the attackers really wanted. So again, the motivation was very different. The attack was on an RSA uh, type of environment. Um, so yeah, we see supply chain where the weakest link is ultimately in the kill chain. You know, it's where you actually want to, you know, the way what your motive is, and ultimately then you create your attack patterns and create your, your you know, your, your your profile for who you want to get to. So I think, yeah, absolutely. I think as we see 
uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, cloud concept that, that has grown to such a big, vast, uh, you know, arena with geopolitics now playing at a, at a national level. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing laws, uh, data protection, GDPRS, that are effectively creating boundaries. So initially it was about taking down walls and boundaries and trading globally. And then all of a sudden, over the last two, three years, we started to see, before COVID, we started to see IP protection, IP theft, uh, and ultimately the, the politics, again, that played with, you know, the trade wars that were taking place between US, China, and others. Um, it was about both preserving their own IP, but also preventing others from, you know, taking market shares. So we started seeing big banks. So I was involved with some major banks, which started looking at how could we, comply with these local incredibly, uh, I guess, incredibly rigorous uh, compliance requirements that wanted, you know, data to reside in their own environments and not, you know, make sure that it didn't leak. Uh, so it sort of moved from, you know, open commerce to let's start to close out again, of course, with COVID uh, taking place as well. Again, it changed the behaviors, it changed the way that we see the world and how we operate in it. So again, it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, as a secure cybersecurity guy to see that, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a demand for it, but you know, how it's actually evolving is just incredible. And the speed at which it's evolving is incredible too. So we see, you know, we see that, that zero trust uh, concept, the zero trust architecture uh, really now coming into fruition. So we see banks wanting to create, you know, micro segmented environments uh, based on, you know, the compliance regulations, they're looking at zero trust architecture. Uh, and I worked with a major bank that was looking at complying to the Turkish uh, incredible encryption laws and, and data security laws, the, uh, the, the Saudi law, and they operate globally. So this is global and how Saudi could be protected, how the Qataris do it, the, the, the Hong Kong has just created another, uh, uh, you know, set of laws for, for its citizens and its, its use of PII data. So we saw that start to really uh, pick up as well. And each, each country and region started creating its own version of, uh, uh, of its own uh, GDPRS, as it were. And it's really important to have those right kind of processes and, and uh, in place when it comes to data flow, because all these interconnected systems that we have now, whether it's within an organization, whether it's within supply chain or it's across nations, data needs to sit in different places and with different people. And it's right in, essential to have the right data security. But there is so much interconnectivity in place that all of that has to be automated as well. And having having efficiency of rule sets and playbooks and processes to make sure that the data can move about, but in a safer way as possible while retaining an element secure. I suppose organizations that fail to do that are going to get hit very badly from a productivity perspective, that those are the ones that are going to be less successful. So I suppose that's the key part of where security needs to be, that business enabler and be used as a competitive advantage, not just as a, you can't do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We see the Chinese um, uh, created some draconian uh, rules regulations for their own internet companies. So if you look at, you know, the demise of Alibaba, you know, if you look at the share prices, you look at Tencent and some of the others, and, and really they, they point to the fact that purely because the regulators got involved and started looking and, and, you know, not only from a competitive perspective, but actually they were looking at it from a, uh, from a much bigger, a wider perspective about how 
they can protect that that data. Um, so those laws and regulations were, were, were you know pushed into into all aspects of those organisations. So not just um, you know operational risk, but actually how you you conduct business as well. So absolutely, I think this, and I think there's a lot more that is happening with the Russia Ukraine situation as well. That's creating you know potentially uh, uh, potential vulnerabilities and and looking at our own supply chain. We're looking now at how we can protect that, how our logistics, our banking services because ultimately, you know, what started off with, you know, a, a geopolitical conflict and hot war, um, you know, between those, there's danger that that might also spread. So I think we've got incredible adversaries. We've got motivations that go beyond what would have been a script kiddie with potentially access to some, you know, daddy's money to fund a little bit of, you know, ransomware. Uh, to a lot more sophisticated attack types with, uh, you know, I, I know my own organization, uh, in fact, when we worked uh, at it, we sat on our, we, we had a, a list and library of zero-day vulnerabilities that we were aware of. Uh, and we would use that to make sure that we were able to protect our customers, uh, obviously feed that back into the community. But I think if you can imagine that at a scale where nation state has that capability to be able to look at zero-day vulnerabilities, use that to to effectively mount an attack on on you know certain infrastructure components. That's quite devastating. It, it absolutely is, and and I think despite the fact that we are all so kind of increasingly interconnected, are you seeing a rise because of whether it's geopolitics on one hand, or whether it's issues around kind of compliance, or just maybe even the economic state of an organ of a, of a country and how well the economy is doing and and how businesses are reacting to that is to an an increasing localization of uh, attacks and tactics by cyber criminals to be able to be you know, specific to the, the local economic situations? It, or is it becoming increasingly sophisticated in that way? Yeah, it is. And if I go back to some of the experiences that I had in the past I, I uh, and that led to, you know, some of the innovative things that we did, I remember geopolitics created uh, at that moment in time, uh, uh, you know, adversaries that were really, um, I suppose they were groups of people that believed in a political motive or believed in a cause. So these were, I mean, I guess it's, it's just like the, uh, you know, the campaigns that we see in London right now around the oil, uh, use of oil and so forth. So these these groups were incredibly motivated. They were incredibly motivated. Uh, they weren't necessarily funded, but what, uh, we were monitoring. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I, I sometimes talk about this. So we were looking at certain groups of people that were motivated by Morsi. Uh, who was the Egyptian president at that time. And and these groups were, you know, ultimately motivated by what he was saying. And they were part of the, the, the you know, a, a sort of a group of people called Brotherhood. And they were attacking, you know, they were looking at creating disruption and disruption to certain uh, countries and economies. So we were monitoring, um, you know, certain groups. We, we embedded ourselves into hacker communities to gather intelligence. Uh, we became authenticated, um, you know, members of some of those uh, th those uh, places. Uh, we created huge amounts of honeypots to get that intelligence, um, and a lot of that was also based on, you know, the, a number of uh, diversion techniques that we used. Um, and so, what we found was that there was a, 
a, a determination by certain groups of people that's beyond financial motivation. So, you know, we found that to be incredibly uh, uh, important. Uh, and to, to control that group of people, you need a lot of intelligence. And as a, as a byproduct, we were able to create uh, an intelligence system that was very useful and we were able to monitor uh, incidents before they actually took place. So one of the biggest organizations that exists today, uh, they were being mounted, uh, they, they had uh, a number of breaches and they were breached uh, a couple of times. We were able to, using that intelligence system, create signatures for potential um, you know, adversaries um, just in time. And, uh, you know, we were able to stop those attacks. The point is, that I think you have to know what the threat landscape really looks like based on the organization, the vertical, the type of, you know, motivational factors that you have. So script kiddies uh, are one set of people. You've got the incredibly you know, sophisticated state actors or affiliated state actors. So the, the cause with Morsi was the fact that the group was, was uh, you know, politically motivated, but the state actors that were used to actually track those down were even more sophisticated. So again, it, it becomes, uh, you know, it, it's very important. We also saw financial motivated attacks in that, you know, many a time. So I was involved in quite a few banks uh, that had been breached. Um, and, and funny enough, as you say, breaches were not, known by the banks. In fact, the alerts came from Visa and MasterCard that something was happening. So it was a third party uh, that was able to tell what was actually happening, not the customer hadn't, you know, hadn't uh, a clue what was going on. So again, that was financially motivated. We saw, you know, people that were uh, in influential positions in those banks use their powers um, without realizing what they were doing as well, to some extent. But most of them were actually, you know, using that to 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 um, uh, to uh, to leverage their financial positions and, and better themselves. So again, we saw that I was involved in quite a few of those banks, uh, mostly in Middle East and Africa, uh, where you know these things were happening, um, and so a lot of this stuff that helped us to, uh, well, helped us to understand the motives and then be uh, start building intelligence that uh, actually looked at the threat actors and then create a potential you know, intelligence system that was relevant and applicable to those type of customers. We've definitely seen a rise in potential kind of insider threat. So some examples you kind of gave there of, of, of compromised individuals, either working with a third party or just working for their own benefit. That's definitely an area we've seen kind of massively increase because I think people presumably have, have seen the, the potential rewards available um, from, you know, financially compromising an organization, um, either to, to, to steal data, to steal information or to give access to other third parties. So I think insider threat has definitely been one of those that's seen one of the most significant rises over the last few years. I totally agree. Again, uh, you know, early 2000s, I was involved with um, third party assessments and audits. And I remember interviewing one of the biggest banks, again, uh, U.S. banks. Uh, and uh, I, I remember interviewing a number of people for, from an audit perspective. Uh, and one of the things that I used to, to find is the relationships that people had internally. And there was a case where one of the, the, the senior uh, managers was actually in a relationship with someone that they shouldn't have been with and that was potentially compromised. Uh, the other thing that I would always look uh, from a risk perspective was to, to see and identify how rigorous they were. 
at identifying potential insiders that may be, you know, uh, potential to corruption. And that would include looking at financial records, looking at the history, uh, looking at seeing if they have financial debt that could be exploited by attackers um, and so forth. So again, you know, it goes back down to, to creating a, a, a model that allows you to identify and manage that risk through different means. And it could be through assessments, it could be through, you know, certain levels of, uh, uh, you know, of enforcement through policy. Um, but absolutely, insider threat has been the hardest one to detect uh, very difficult. So one of the, the biggest organizations in, in um, Saudi Arabia, actually, um, you know, there were issues around the religious sects that they have. So there was certain areas where, you know, certain uh, religious sect was not welcome and others were. So you'd have to, to, to very much navigate as to what they, you know, what their background was. So as part of, you know, our services, um, we used to be very mindful of how we, we make sure that we send the right people to do the consultative engagements, because otherwise it wouldn't be, it, it, they wouldn't share everything and anything. So I think there's a lot of cultural awareness that you probably also need and understand, you know, how you're going to cover that off, um, because there are potential, you know, tribal things, tribal affiliations, uh, financial, you know, uh, issues with debt or, or, or relationships with people that might not be, you know, uh, may, may create a, a risk for, for that organization. And when it comes to kind of insider threat, um, you know, kind of that that's one of the kind of elements, I suppose, has also helped kind of significantly drive the, 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 the popularity of organizations looking to embrace zero trust and a reevaluation of how we how we look at people individually, rather than simply by job title or all responsibility, that's not granular enough to enable somebody to go, well, they're a senior director, they can have the keys to the kingdom, they can access everything. Getting a much better understanding of what people need to do, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons of, uh, that I can see that Zero Trust is becoming increasingly popular because it enables organisations to just take a much more pragmatic view on what people should be accessing and what they, they shouldn't be. Um, I think in the past, the focus has been very much on systems rather than rather than people and i think that's where that 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 change is probably coming that we're flipping over much more looking at the people and the individuals involved and you know whether it's job role whether it's kind of potentially compromise or whether it's kind of how vulnerable they could be to things like social engineering absolutely uh, we used to have a concept in sarbanes oxley 404 that came out which was segregation of duties initially came out because of the the issues they had with enron and others um, but, uh, you know, not only is an identity a very, very, uh, you know, granular part that you need to know, um, and then the identity has to have a role and fit into multiple roles, but it needs that role. And ultimately, based on that role, you allow them certain business access. So that's the concept of RBAC, role-based access control. So we were looking at identities in that sense. We were looking to see how do we give them access to what they need to know, what they have to have, and then ultimately provide authentication and authorization and create, you know, then multiple authentication factors if needed. Um, but again, as you said, it then depends because, you know, what used to happen is that just because they have the role, they have the authority and they have the authentication, it doesn't stop them from real life experiences that might have through a divorce, through a, you know, something else that might go through. So I think that dynamic user protection uh, concept, which is ultimately looking at user behavior, because we are all humans, we do all go through 
ups and downs in life through you know whatever means and however you know it impacts us some it impacts more some it doesn't um but that behavior analytics piece that we need to have is one sure way of looking at whether there's a you know a potential here and ultimately uh, you know tracking that understanding the baselines and then ultimately seeing the deviation can give us a better analysis on it so you know dynamic user protection you know behavioral analysis of that type is one indicator uh, that we can use when we're looking at you know uh, inside a threat yeah and 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 also because increasingly it kind of people are are no longer within the networks either so you know the right. the massive change that we've had in remote working over the last few years um increasingly there is an importance of understanding kind of what users are doing because they're not within a traditional perimeter um anymore and therefore getting a better understanding and they may not even be on company devices um <laughs> and they may be accessing cloud applications that we don't own so the co the most common uh, denominator on all of those is going to be is going to be the people absolutely and that zero trust you talked about absolutely so you're going to have to firstly we have to encourage productivity so we're all you know obviously going to have to be productive uh, to encourage productivity we've started now saying well okay you know work from home uh, work from a cafe um, a lot of uh, if you look at your own device you know we bring our own phones we have uh, you know the relevant applications that we need to use apps are on the phones we can use uh, our laptops from cafes uh, and these are you know not even managed devices as such uh, so we have unmanaged devices again you know this is why things like indicators of behavior are a real good indicators within the zero trust architecture framework zero trust architecture framework is quite in, encompassing and if you look at 80207 the nist standards that's one big uh, you know the uh, one massive uh, way of uh, looking at nist um, 80207 zero trust architecture and the issue you know again back to, uh, as you said goes down to individuals and their indicators of behavior, how they're behaving compared to what their role should be and how that role should behave. And that then gives you an indication of what's actually happening. And as we drive more towards productivity with you know, all the typical access to apps and, and, and systems that we want, uh, then that becomes a, a bigger a reason to actually see how the user behaves and what those indicators of behavior look like uh, and what should the baseline be. So again, yeah, we have to look at it beyond product, beyond technology, beyond process, and got to look at people too. Absolutely. So uh, I suppose the, the kind of question is, is how do you how do you see some of the the, the kind of the bad actors and, and cyber criminals being kind of taking that next step to to stay ahead? I think definitely the the zero trust kind of concept. Obviously, it's not a product. It's you know, it's a it's it's a framework to be able to to to. Do, kind of wrap your cybersecurity strategy around, but being able to minimize and isolate risks and not give people access to, to more than they should do, I think is going to help a lot of organizations and they take a big step forward. So, so where do you think that, that um, kind of bad actors are potentially going to look at compromising people? Are they going to go back to kind of more focusing on kind of infrastructure and direct access or is it going to be kind of, you know, a, a different turn that they'll take in terms of kind of exploiting people's vulnerabilities as well as systems? Yeah, I, I remember this. Um, I, I guess I, I relate back to my previous experiences. I think, you know, financial motivations will become a key player in this. Uh, I see um, you know, the, the economic situation, the hardships that we have with the cost of living, creating a lot of 
unsophisticated, if I may say so. They're not necessarily going to be sophisticated, but it's going to be volume based. And unfortunately, uh, if you look at the statistics, a lot of uh, organizations get hit accidentally by, you know, uh, 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 ransomwares everywhere. And ultimately, you know, especially with I found that the sea levels were the hardest people to train sometimes. And they're the ones that ultimately want things done quickly. They need access to things quickly. So I think a lot of that's going to be very opportunistic. We've got to make sure that controls, uh, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, creating the right environment, but ultimately reducing the attack surface. So I think things like remote browser isolation, where, you know, you're effectively working within, a, a, you know, a controlled environment when you're browsing would, would ultimately help. The other thing that I see is things like, um, you know, and, and again, we're talking about zero trust. So we're talking about an architecture framework and we're talking about single products, but we're talking about, you know, preventative and, and detective controls and management controls that would help. So in terms of, you know, being able to to do this preventatively, uh, that's going to be the, the, the bigger uh, bigger play. So in order to prevent that, I think RBI, uh, there's a concept called, um, you know, CDR, it's content disarm and reconstruct, where, you know, a lot of sophisticated attackers are now embedding, you know, images with, uh, with, with uh, command and control. So, so again, you know, stagnafree is going to be key. Um, and so concepts like CDR, where you're actually doing a lot of volume based, uh, you know, document management is going to be another important aspect of this. We see, um, again, micro segmentation, segmentation being a key component. So again, creating, you know, the relevant architectural uh, components for that zero trust architecture framework, including how you segment east-west traffic, identities are going to be incredibly important. And of course, you'll hear a lot of, uh, you know, customers, and it's very true, it's not, you know, you know, if they'll be attacked, it's actually when they'll be attacked. So it's, it's when they'll be compromised. And for that, I think a lot of uh, potential detection capabilities uh, with, uh, you know, uh, with the ability to do automation uh, and automatic response with SOAR platforms is going to be another key. Um, but I found we're working uh, in one of the biggest, um, you know, I I environments in the world, um, I was called out initially when it was attacked and there was a breach and we had to send forensics people and, and bring it back up and get it working. And it took months. Um, they spent millions and millions. The second time round, I was called out at 9 p.m. Um, uh, by, by the CISO saying, look, I've got breached again. Uh, looked at the intelligence systems, couldn't see anything at all to say that they had been compromised or been attacked. Um, sent in, you know, the first responders of the forensics team. When they got on site, they found that actually uh, the person that was operating this this particular environment, and they had by that time, they'd acquired just about every technology you could imagine. It was the biggest company in the world, so could afford it. It took everything on. Unfortunately, what happened then was that this person applied, uh, uh, you know, changed the HIPS policy, a host intrusion protection policy, uh, and, and unfortunately left a dot in the script. What that did was that stopped the script from being applied. They didn't have the governance process either. It was obviously a very tense environment, and so brought down fifty thousand, you know, um, uh, servers. The the lesson learned is that you have to have, you know, firstly you've got to be able to operate really well, and in order to do that, you've got to optimize those platforms so that they're easier to manage. They're easier to do that. So integrated 
uh, operationally efficient environments are going to be key because the people that are actually working on these environments are incredibly busy um, and they really don't have the luxury of time. They have to make decisions in a very quick fashion. So while souls can do certain things, there's still the human component that needs to be there and that human component uh, needs that 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 conformity that simplicity in an architecture way so you can manage your platforms you can manage your swig you can manage your caspi you can manage your ztna you've got your dlp your cdr all of that with a single you know console that you can easily see um, and you don't have to move around swivel chair from one console to another or change and swap and that, that ultimately creates that human error that none of us want. Um, obviously, you know, the human factor is the biggest factor out of all of them. Absolutely. And, and, and almost having systems that kind of create your own vulnerabilities are the last thing you need. Making it simplistic and, and automated is, as possible because we are seeing a, a skills gap. We are seeing a challenge of, of organisations, I think, Cybersecurity in particular, I think, is, is beginning to wake up to the need to, you know, kind of get more people involved that aren't necessarily from a technical background. And I think there's value in that, not to just to address the skills gap, but to be able to bring different perspectives to it as well. Um, but until we get to that point of being able to bring more people in, having systems that are as simple as possible and can move at the speed of business really are are essential. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, as we see um, platforms uh, being engineered and re-engineered, we're going to see, um, you know, we, we're going to want simplicity and simplicity for operational, uh, you know, operation models are going to be key. I think the, the, the most uh, fundamental part is to make that operating model, the run books, the playbooks, very easy to consume yeah. uh, as we go forward. Absolutely. Well, I think we're just kind of drawing to the end. So I really, really appreciate your, your time today. But for, for organizations kind of listening or, or partners looking to work with their, their customers on their cybersecurity strategy, what would be the kind of the one takeaway you would, you'd say in terms of following this? What's the one thing they should maybe have a look at and visit with regard to kind of making sure that their cybersecurity posture is as robust as possible? Oh, well, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a very vast one, right? So I think, firstly, uh, let's take the concepts that uh, the analysts use, Forrester in particular, so is CARA, uh, which is understand your critical assets, so understand your crown jewels, understand who has access to that, the identities are key. As we move to the cloud, so the assumption, firstly, we, we make is that in order to to um, you know to optimize our business and increase productivity, uh, there's a there's a uh, there's a need to go to the cloud. So that's I think the first. And if we do that, we've got to really understand what are our critical assets, uh, what is the risk to those critical assets, and ultimately apply that zero uh, architecture principle, reduce the attack surface, ensure that you have defense in depth, and work with a very simple uh, logic of you know, preventative controls first. So, you know, understand what that looks like. Create that roadmap, uh, the gaps that you need to get from where you are, baseline it, of course. There are controls cost money, so you don't want to, you know, you don't want to prioritize controls that aren't going to give you that that return. Prioritize those controls based on the critical assets. Uh, look at the, the, the potential impact, business impact, and then embark on that journey where you can actually optimize simplify and automate as much of it as possible okay that's brilliant smashing but thank you very much for for joining us today appreciate it Billy Khan thank you thank you take care bye-bye